Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. We are getting close to the end of chapter 5, and uh, you are gluttons. You keep coming back. Uh, yeah, he's killing us. Uh, so, if you're a guest with us, we, we are going through the Sermon on the Mount. We are, uh, it's Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and we're almost, we have a few, a few more things to do in Matthew chapter 5, and uh, in the new year, we'll get to chapter 6. We are, uh, I mean, Jesus is describing what, what, it, what it looks like to have, uh, to to be under his rule and to be in, in the kingdom. And uh, I want to remind you about something, because this is a good spot to, to come back to it, uh, about the two startling things, the two really at the bottom of everything Jesus is teaching us. There are two things that are really significant, and he will come back to them. He started in chapter 5, we learned them. He will come back to them in chapter 7. Okay, uh, so he reveals Jesus at, as he's giving us all these details. He is on the one hand revealing something very significant, and on the other hand dismantling something about our worlds. So the f- first thing he's doing is revealing that sin has an inward component. It's not just external. Now, this is... This is a devastating thing to learn because we tend to focus on the external, okay? But then when he shows that to us, the second thing that happens is he just he dismantles any standard that we have set up to support our external lives. Any, any standard that you've set up to look better than someone else it's gone. It's just shattered. You, you, you have nothing. And again, that is devastating because you and I, who are desperate to find what it looks like to be good people and to live good lives, we have set up external standards. And every day, we're filtering people through that thing, trying to figure out where we stand. Where do we stand? Now, the only way, because I mean, up to now, and especially what we're going to look at now, and then what comes after that, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost overwhelming. And you say, how can anybody live like Jesus is telling us to live? Well, I'll tell you this. You cannot do it until you see your own sin on the inside. And until that standard, that external standard is demolished. Because your ability to love people is limited by that standard. And Jesus says, once I wipe that away, your heart's clean. I can do something with it. It lays the groundwork for the changed heart that Jesus is describing. 
So an investigation into my heart reveals, listen, this is what happens. If you haven't already seen it, you're really going to see it in a minute. Uh, that my heart is all I need to investigate scientifically, morally, any way I want. All the evil I need to see in the world is right here. I, I need look no further. There's enough active evil. There's enough inactive evil. And there's enough potential for evil in here to end the entire discussion. C.S. Lewis, when he came to Christ, this is what happens when you come into the kingdom. This is what devastates you first. When you first come into the kingdom, C.S. Lewis said, this is what he wrote when he became a Christian. For the first time, I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose. And there, I found what appalled me. A zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. I needed to look nowhere else but my own heart. We do not do that. Jesus has to guide you on that tour. You won't go there by yourself. So I see myself in a whole new light. I become the desperate one. And then the standard that I use to judge other people. Who are you know, worse than me. Is demolished. Can you imagine what it's like to live without a standard that, that makes you look better than other people? Can you imagine one day of not picturing yourself superior to someone? Who doesn't feel better than Urban Meyer right now? I mean, thank God he exists. Because I feel better about the crap I do because I'm not like that. We had a gal that used to come to our church. I've told you this before. Her name was Rain. Rain. And uh, she used to work in, one, in, the, in the prison system. I can't remember exactly what her job was. Uh, she, um, she was in the process of, of trying to figure out what it meant to become a Christian. She wasn't ready to cross the line yet, but she was working with these prisoners, you know. And she said there was a guy on death, death row who had raped and murdered like 16 prostitutes. And she interacts with these people. I can't remember exactly all how she did it, but she remembers him saying to her, you know, I've made some mistakes, but overall I'm a good person. And she said, you know, I'm thinking to myself, you know, we, we laughed about it when we were talking about it. You know, who's he comparing himself to? You got to go Jeffrey Dahmer, right? <laughs> At least I didn't eat you. That's what you got to say. She said, when he said that to me, I immediately thought to myself, I do the same thing. That's what I do. 
I find something that I'm better than somebody else and feel good about myself. In the end of the book, in Matthew 7, Jesus is going to say there's two ways, there's two roads to heaven. Well, there's actually two roads we're on. Only one leads to heaven. One is narrow. It's a really small opening. You miss it. The reason it's small and narrow is because you, you don't see it. The wide road everybody's on. And, of course, Jesus is establishing what the two things are all the way through the book. He said, what are the two roads? What are they saying? One of them, the wide road, says, I can get there by what I do. The narrow road is the road when people realize they cannot get there on their own. I was listening to the radio yesterday. I had to move my car early in the morning for Gail to get out. And you know how when you get in your car and your phone's not with you, so you're not hooked into your Bluetooth thing, and then uh, some radio station comes on that you hadn't heard and you haven't heard anything on, it just starts blaring on stuff. And this guy, while I'm in the car waiting for her to pull out and all the stuff, I hear this guy, he's giving away cars. This radio host is giving away cars. He does this every year. I've never heard it before. He's giving away cars to, to people who have done great things over the year. He does it every year. And he's really excited about it. You can tell he loves it. He just got off the phone with one lady. They're about to surprise a guy after the commercial. And um, he describes how he loves doing it. And then he said this. It's my highway to heaven. And I'm sitting there going, he didn't just say that. That's exactly what Jesus said. I, the wide road is the one you construct that the one you build to get you to heaven on your good deeds. If I take away, if I take away that construction, if I demolish that road, you're devastated. You have nowhere to go. You have no hope of getting there. But there's a narrow little road that only Jesus can guide you down. You depend on him. So that's what's happening. So as you hear these crazy things Jesus seems to say, they only make sense if your road, if your highway has been demolished. They'll only make sense if that highway is demolished. When Christ destroys that moral code and your system fails and you're helpless and hopeless and you need rescue, all of a sudden your perspective on everything changes, your perspective on yourself, your perspective on God, and your perspective on other people. You don't look at people the same way because you don't look at yourself the same way. You realize your only hope is somebody to love you. And what a narrow space that, what a narrow place that's got to be to find that kind of hope and forgiveness in the world. That you absolutely are undeserving of it. It humbles you. This is what it does to you, people in the kingdom. It humbles them. It makes it easier to radically love other people. Even those who don't deserve it, and even those who hurt you personally, 
you don't look at them the same. So you can't look down on others. You can't consider them out of reach. Any superiority over them limits your ability to love them. When Jesus takes that superiority away, then you don't have to hold yourself up, prop yourself up, try to be, you know, all that goes away. You can love people better. So all relationships are radically altered when you come into the kingdom. This is the reason why Jesus can call us to the things that he calls us to. I don't see God the same. I need him. I'm not doing him a favor with my good life. I need him. I don't see myself the same. It means I don't see others the same. They go together. Well, what kind of love are we talking about? How loving do we need to be? Well, in the next... Are you ready to throw up? How's your gag reflex? I want to know how you gag reflex. Because you're going to puke. I, I did a few times in a bucket this week. Here's what Jesus says. Let's see. Where are we? I skipped some stuff. Let me make sure I didn't skip anything I don't really want to skip. Let me make sure of that. So Jesus says this. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, this is... uh, This is basically the justice system in the Old Testament. Um, Lex talionis. You You get what you deserve. It was how the nation of Israel carried out justice. So it was administered to by judges. It was sort of the civil, it was it was the judicial system, okay? Um, it's how you handle lawsuits and when we offended each other when we hurt each other what did we do we, we had to have some legal way to deal with things and the system basically involved uh, making sure that people didn't take matters into their own hands uh, so it didn't ignore justice you were going to pay it just made sure that you didn't pay too much Uh, No vigilante justice, no personal revenge. And now listen, because of it, which was a great principle at the time, Israel was one of the most merciful cultures because they just made sure people didn't, didn't go overboard. Punishment had to fit the crime. It was just because it made sure sin was taken care of. It was merciful because it didn't go too far. And it really was uh, beneficent, to the, especially to the weak, who didn't have the ability to make people pay more. So the strong didn't get the upper hand over the weak in the system. Deep in the human heart, as old as dirt, is the innate sense of if I'm wrong, somebody needs to pay. That's 
the retaliative instinct in all of us when we are hurt. But here's the problem. Without some way to guide this, if I take your tooth, you want all my teeth. You don't just want my tooth. You know what? I'm going to take your tooth too. Get over here. No, no, no. You want all my teeth. If I, if I take your eye, you want both my eyes. Um, and then I'll smash your head in with a brick. And then you'll burn my house down. And then I'll kidnap your kids. I mean, it's just go on and on and on, right? Remember that guy who killed his neighbor over a garden hose? I don't know if you remember that story. This is in us this, this is in little. When my kids were little, when the boys, I remember when Anthony and Eric were little. In the first house we were in, I can remember they'd play rough. They were little. Anthony would dominate Eric. Eric had this sort of inner quiet strength. And he'd get dominated. And then he'd wander away and you won't know where he was. He grabbed a big toy. And when Anthony wasn't looking, he'd come back smashing right over the head with it. You could see this at work right away. In fact, over, Jeff Wakefield, <laughs> he and I remember this story because we were literally at the house together watching this whole scenario unfold. Little old quiet Eric didn't make any sudden moves. Just quietly went over there and grabbed something. We watched him come over and smash him right in the head with it. <laughs> to this day, Eric, uh, Jeff won't sit with his back to Eric. He just won't do it. But this is how you end up with the Hatfields and the McCoys. All right? You see Godfather? You see the Godfather? Uh, Michael Corleone in the first one. This is the music you hear. And they're walking up and sit there in Sicily. And they're walking up this valley. And you look up at the top of this hill and there's a beautiful Italian city. It just looks huge. And they get up there and they're walking through the streets. And you remember Michael Corleone is watching. He's looking through the streets. And he says this to his two bodyguards. Where are all the men? And his bodyguard says, they're all dead from vendettas. The whole town's dead. All the men are gone. It's just the women and children. They've all killed each other. That's what you end up with. And this is what literally God is trying to protect Israel from. You're going to wipe each other out without some system of justice. Well, what happened in Jesus' day, and he's pointing it out, is somehow, and we've all used, how many of you have ever used eye for an eye for an action you made? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, man, that's what you get. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, that's what they were doing. They took something that was civil and judicial. And by the time of Jesus' day, it was, you know, they had other ways of paying. They didn't literally take an eye or a, or a hand. You had, you had to pay. You had to cough up cash for your, for your injury, you know, if you injured somebody. So uh, what happened was they started making this personal matters. They started figuring out a spiritual way to get an eye an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But like you know, it always gets worse than that. It always ends up worse than that. And Jesus could see what was happening to their hearts. And so he brings up the issue of how do people in the kingdom love when they get hurt? 
When they get hurt, how do they love? Does their love stop? That's what he's describing. He gives four illustrations of how he wants people in the kingdom to live. And they're very everyday-ish. And I was again living this week thinking of all the different times and nuances of ways I felt crossed or hurt. And just monitoring my reaction to it. And you'd be surprised how daily you have to figure out what you're going to do because we all hurt each other a lot. Um, so here's what Jesus says. The first one is, I say to you, do not resist. Do not resist the one who, really, the one who does the bad thing. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, everybody knows this text, the turn the other cheek text. So what I want to do is I just want to walk through the illustrations, then I want to wrap up what kingdom hearts sort of are being transformed into. Here's the, here's the first one. They're all very um, overwhelming. So the first one is what happens if you're humiliated by someone? Because this is a metaphor. This isn't an actual slap on the cheek. Most of us are thinking, well, if somebody punches me in the face, this is what I'm supposed to do. It's not that. Okay, this is, uh, you know how we say stab in the back? You didn't actually get stabbed in the back. It felt like a stab in the back. You didn't get slapped. That was a slap in the face, we will say. That was a slap in my face. That's what this is. And because uh, in that culture, they weren't doing that very often, you know, but you turn, your, uh, you turn to them, somebody slaps you in the right cheek, they were mostly right-handed. They didn't have left-handed people in the Bible. I don't know if you guys know that or not. <laughs> and so what it, would what would it entail is a backslap. It's a backhand to the face. It would be humiliating. Kind of, that, that's a humiliating kind of uh, slap. It's a backhand. And in the shame honor culture, they would have known exactly what was happening here. It wasn't an actual slap. It was, an it was an offense against my dignity. You made me look small. It was embarrassing. And it stung like a slap. The instinctive reaction to that is to hit back. You'll go grab a toy. I have to defend myself. How dare you? These are the things we'll say. Do you know who I am? I refuse to be treated that way. And Jesus says, do you see where this is going to go? It's going to be like playing relational tennis. You're going to volley back and forth. I'm going to hurt you now, then you're going to hurt me, and it's just never going to stop. And so Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Now, what does he mean by that? Because anybody who really actually slapped you would almost be, you'd almost never see somebody literally turn their face and say, slap me again. What's he saying? 
He's saying, offer the other side of your face, meaning don't try to save face. See, because when you get humiliated, you'll try to save face. He's saying, don't save face. Put, the, put your face at risk. Put the other side of your face at risk. Risk it happening again. Don't hate. Don't withdraw. To turn the other cheek essentially means this. I don't hit you back, so I don't attack. But the other thing is, is that I don't withdraw. You know how we do to people? We just will never, we'll, we'll never go near them again. Jesus says, if you turn the other cheek, that means I still have to be within reach of somebody. So I couldn't run. So I couldn't attack you. I couldn't hit you back. But I also couldn't run. I had to stay vulnerable to it happening again. That's what Jesus is saying. By turning the other cheek, I refrain from hitting you. But I also stay within reach. This is incredibly difficult. You know, when you get backhanded, slapped, out of the blue. It could be a spouse. It could be a friend. It could be a, a family member, a co-worker. It happens all the time. It's gossip. Most of the times it's things we say to each other online. Somebody makes you feel bad. You feel slapped online. So what do you do? You slap back and you make it worse. That's what we do. That's what the instinct. We have this little phrase that says, the first time, shame on you. Second time, what? Shame on me. You know why? Because I put myself in that position. That's exactly what Jesus is telling you to do. Put yourself back in the position. That phrase, shame on you, shame on me, is not a kingdom heart phrase. That's a I'm going to get you back phrase. That is, I've learned my lesson. I will not let you hit me again. Jesus saying, no. You stay right in there, and you love even if it hurts. That's what he's saying. I want, here's what he's saying, I want the relationship to matter more than your dignity. When you come into the kingdom, your dignity is not more important than loving the person. How does that feel? Mm. We're trying to protect our dignities all the time. Oh, you're not doing that. Do you know who I am? That spirit's spirit's gone. See, we cancel people. You offend me. You disagree with me. You do anything to slight me. I'm done with you. You're done. That's not kingdom culture. We do it to family members. I'm done with you. I heard what she said to our to. Do you see what she? Did you hear what she said to the sister, our sister? Oh no, she ain't coming to my Thanksgiving. Isn't that what we do? How many times a day? How many times a week are we in the process of trying to figure out how we're going to stay away from and get back at? Constantly, it's constant. Whether you're driving in a car, or it doesn't matter what you're doing.
So the first one is when you're humiliated, you love. The second one is when you're, well, I call it uh, dominated. This is a legal matter, okay? It's the, uh, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. Okay, so this is, uh, the tunic was the thing that you wore under your clothes. It was very valuable. Clothing was a very valuable sort of thing in that culture. In a sense, in the way it is for us, but it even had more sort of meaning in an honor-shame culture. That's what you wore under certain things. Um, it was a kind of a thin, long sleeve. I picture the Scrooge, those pajamas he was wearing. That's what they would wear. It's kind of almost like a, uh, a dress more than a uh, uh, pants or anything like that. It was an important part of everyday wear. And so uh, if you owed a debt and you couldn't pay, that's what they would come after. That's the kind of value I had. All right? Um, the only thing they could get out of you was what you were wearing. And that was okay. I'll take it. It mattered. Uh, so you're literally down to nothing. Okay? You know the phrase, he, he lost his shirt and that deal. That's what this is. He lost everything. Now he's got no shirt on either. It's kind of... So this is a guy who legitimately lost. He owed a debt, and it went to court, and he had to give up his tune. Well, that process, if you've ever been in it, okay, can garner a lot of hate and desire because you don't like the guy who has sued you for what you owe him. You don't like the guy making a demand on your life even though you owe it. We don't like that. Maybe everything wasn't handled exactly well or the other guy on the other side was smug. We don't like that either. And the whole time he's getting what he rightfully should get, I'm despising him more and more. And Jesus is essentially saying, own your part. If you owe them, give them the tunic. But I want you to do something else. Because I know that the average person is going to say, you know, I'm going I'm to ball that thing up. I'm going to dirty it up in the ground and I'm going to throw it at you. Right? Jesus says, no, I don't want you to do that. I want you to wash it. I want you to clean it. I want you to give it to him. And I want you to express to him that you're really sorry that you put him in that position. And that you're willing to give him more if it'll help make the whole thing better. And you offer him your cloak. Now, the coat was far more valuable than the in fact, listen to this. In Israel, you could not take, you couldn't sue someone for their coat. That's the reason they sued him for the inner. Because you're not allowed to sue for the coat. It was too valuable. I could take my coat and I could use it as a sort of a, um, uh, you know, it could be uh, an asset that I give to you to the end of the day, but you had to give me my coat back. 
by the end of the, by the nighttime because it's how you kept warm. So it was it was just very valuable, and it signified security. Uh, I gave you my undergarment. I gave you my coat. Now I'm naked. I'm standing here with nothing. And I gave you what you could not take from me. And Jesus says, this is what I'm trying to say to the people who live in the kingdom. I want the relationship with people to matter more than your security and comfort. You're standing out there naked on the road. But you have valued that relationship and made it right. You got to be naked for a minute. That's okay. Jesus rattles off another one. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Now this would have been, I like that it says anyone, because primarily for the Jews, this one I called obligation. So the first one is uh, in a situation where you're humiliated. Second one is when you're dominated. You lost, but you're a sore loser. And even though what was, was happening to you is right, you just don't like the other person for getting what's right from you, and so you hurt back. This one is obligation because any citizen of Rome was obligated to a Roman soldier if they happened to be on the same path and that Roman soldier said, look, I'd like for you to carry my, I'm sure they said it really politely, I'd love it if you could do this for me. Carry that. And you had to pick that thing up and you had to go and you had to, you had to go up to a mile. It was, you, you were required to go up to a mile. It could be shorter, but a mile is what you were called to do. This is exactly what happened, by the way, when Jesus was carrying his cross and Simon of Cyrene just walking by and a Roman soldier said carry that cross it was obligated so this is what I call surprise duty this is uh, and boy for us this is another big one we get put in a position we just seemingly can't refuse we get inconvenienced by somebody um you know, this is our attitude. You know, you, you pick up that thing and you're like, geez, I have my own life. I was on my way to something. I had somewhere to go. I had places to go. I have my own stuff to carry, my own miles to trek. That's our lives. That's <laughs> moving and carrying. That's what humans do. We're great at it. We got feet and hands. We're moving and we're carrying stuff. And you, you could easily have the attitude after that mile you go, that's as far as I'm going. Throw that pack down. Probably wouldn't throw that pack down to a Roman soldier, but you could see the attitude is, that's as far as I go. And Jesus says, I want you to go the extra mile. Move past the obligation. This was unheard of in this culture. And let me tell you how it sort of fits into our culture. Um, the reason this was a particularly irksome one to the Israelites, to the Jews, 
was because of the political overtones. They hated being under Roman rule. They hated it. It was a, it was a, it was a scourge that they lived with every day under domination by somebody else. Nobody wants to be told what to do. You're not, don't tell me what I can and can't do. You hear that spirit in our culture? That's the spirit in our culture right now. It's got some political flavor to it, but it's got this freedom thing. It sounds so utterly pious. I have my rights. I'm free. If I want to go, I'll go. If I want to wear it, I will. If I don't want to get it, I won't. That nasty spirit is destroying this country. And in the kingdom, it's not allowed. They justified their rage because of their rights. And here's what happens when you come into the kingdom. Your rights are not more important than the relationships. And if you're hurting people or dominating people because of your rights, no, 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 no. In the kingdom, you give those up for people. People matter more. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. I want relationships to matter to you more than your liberty. And then finally, Jesus says, if anyone begs from you, do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Give to the one who begs from you. Uh, This is, I said imposition here. The first one, humiliation. The second one, where you're dominated. The third one, where you feel obligated. You know, then this fourth one is sort of imposition. This is the awkward position of somebody asking you for something. Sometimes we avoid certain people because we know they're going to ask for something. We just don't like the, the, the sort of obligated feeling they put us in. And that's usually with people who have some sort of claim on us, you know, their family. You know, your wife says, you know, my brother-in-law needs me. You know, no, that's Dave in our family. No, that's not happening. I'm sorry. You know, somebody's got a claim, and because they do, they're related, and we got to go, ah, jeez. All right? Jesus is talking about anyone here. He's like, raises the bar. People who have a claim on you, you're always doing stuff you didn't want to do. You feel obligated to do it. But then there's people come into your life, and you're like, I don't even know you. I'm not even sure I'm the right person for you to be asking. But you get asked. You can be resentful. You can be defensive. You can be more reasonable than, gener- gen- than generous in these cases. And you'll be, you know, you, you go down that line of, oh, I don't want to give my stuff to that. They don't deserve it. You just go through a list of things. You easily can pull away and distance yourself from, from the needy. Sometimes needy people engender your disdain. There's a host of good reasons, by the way. We could, we could do an entire talk on uh, good reasons not to give to a person who begs and not to give to a person who borrows. And I'll bet you're better at that, given the reason. Jesus is like, I don't want to hear it. I've worked hard for my money. They're irresponsible. 
Because that's usually how we think about beggars and borrowers. Jesus says, I want the relationship to matter more than your money and your stuff. Now, let me say this to you before I quickly apply this. Uh, These are not laws. If you turn these into laws, you're still constructing a highway. Well, you took my shirt. Jesus said, I got to give you my coat too. (laughs) You know, that kind of thing. I got to go two miles because Jesus said to. That's not it. Don't turn them into laws. There are times you shouldn't go an extra mile. You're on your way to something really important. Uh, There are times you can't give your coat because this is not a good spot to be naked. All right? Or whatever the case. There are good, of course. Don't turn them into laws. What you basically have here is this is the, this is the heart bent of somebody in the kingdom. They're not looking to hurt back somebody who hurts them. And they are, they're actually trying to do good to someone who has hurt them. Whatever that looks like. Now, I know this seems impossible. seems unrealistic. The only way it makes sense is if you picture yourself as the bad guy in every single one of those illustrations and remember Jesus treated you that way. He went the extra mile for you. He took your slap in the face and stayed right there within reach. You took his tunic. He gave you his coat. You begged because you had nothing. And he gave it to you. Until your heart remembers that you're the guy in every single one of those, then you'll never be able to treat anybody else that way. You are that guy. And so the heart that's been restructured can love that dramatically. So quickly, when people, here's how I would just sort of wrap this up. Just, this is what I think we hear Jesus saying pretty loudly. Number one, uh, when people fail or hurt or injure you, you don't magnify their sin beyond your failures because you're well aware that sometimes you're the guy on the other end. You humiliate people. You obligate people. You dominate people. And you need things. That's you. So you see your own sin. You know, because all the people on the other side of this thing could be categorized. There's the smug guy, the irresponsible guy. We love pointing those guys out. See, this, this is Jesus' point. Oh, we love finding the irresponsible guy. It makes us feel responsible. We love seeing the inconsiderate guy because that makes us feel very considerate and kind. We love finding the slapper because it makes us look like pacifists, sweethearts, kind. Right? We love it. And see, what makes my relationship with God dynamic enough is that I realize I'm that bad guy sometimes. So I'm far more gentle with the people who do these things. 
I don't immediately think payback. I think, how can I love this guy? Secondly, real quick, when I'm hurt, when evil's done to me, I don't see their evil as far worse than me like I'm some saint. Secondly, when I'm hurt, my personal injury doesn't consume my life. It doesn't become my whole world. And now I see the whole world through what you did to me in my pain. People who live in the kingdom could easily make their injury everything. But Jesus has just brought them into a world that's far bigger than just their injuries. And if you make the injury that happened to you, he stole my, he took my, do you know what he, and and that's the thing. And now in this whole world I live in, the biggest thing in it is what happened to me. You'll become a crusty old, never be able to love anybody great. All you think about what's happened to you. Dallas Willard says, we have a larger view of our life and our place in God's world now. We see God, we see ourselves in his hands, and we see our injurer as more than that one who has imposed on us or hurt us. We recognize his humanity, his pitiful limitations, and we see him under God. We just see the world differently. We got a bigger world than our injury. So pain doesn't dictate our life. So my dignity, my security, my liberty, and my property, they belong to God. And here's the reason. We're going to see this all in chapter 6. It's because I'm in his kingdom. I'm secure. I mean, I can lose anything here. I can lose face. I'm always safe. I'm free even though somebody takes my rights. I'm cared for even though I'm standing here naked. Even though I've given you my last I'm cared for. So our first reactions tend to shut down. Another reaction is to hurt, get away. Because, Willard says, we have the perspective of eternity. We will be taken care of. We can be vulnerable because we are in the end simply invulnerable. So your red face, naked body, tired feet, and material loss do not define the limits of love in the kingdom. They don't define the limits of love. And if you have to do something different than what Jesus is saying here in one of these situations, as one commentator said, it will be because love or scripture guided you to do something different, but not hate or vengeance. I read Isaiah 53. I'll close with this. I read Isaiah 53 after this. There's so many comparisons. Jesus was slapped. He was stripped. He was exhausted. And he was robbed. All for me. Isaiah 53 says he was crushed for our iniquities, just crushed. People who live in the kingdom, they know what he's done for them. 
That's the reason that he can even begin to contemplate loving people like this. Bow your heads. Father, all I can really ask for, God, is that you drive home the truth of your grace to our hearts so that we see our own sin worse than others. And we don't make our hurt the limit to our love. Only you can make that happen because you've loved us, forgiven us, and treated us that way. We can do it for others. In Jesus' name.